0: Welcome to That Stack of Books, an extra author interview. I'm Steve Sher. Nancy Pearl and I will be back at the Brian Corner Cafe soon with our group of readers talking about new books and old books alike. Right now, a book that's coming up to be released in the fall. Why do we know the name Rasputin? It might be because there's such a huge mythology that's built up around this otherwise obscure Russian monk. Douglas Smith is an historian who's written about the end of the Russian aristocracy, and in his last books, as he did his research, he kept coming across Rasputin. So he thought he'd investigate Rasputin, who otherwise is not taken very seriously in the scholarly community. But... Smith had access to archives in Russia and around the world that revealed new aspects of Rasputin, the man, and the myth. I did this interview with Smith at Folio, the new independent membership library that's in downtown Seattle. I put links to Folio at our website, That Stack of Books. You can find out more information about the new institution. That was started by David Brewster, who you may know, also started Crosscut Town Hall, the Seattle Weekly. Just real quick, one more round of applause for David, who has established another great institution that's going to go on for many years. David et al., this is a small and intimate room, and I I could already tell that you're going to be itching to shout things out, so yes, just shout out if i 'm going too slow, just you know weigh in if I don't think the question fits i'll I'll, I'll be very delicate. Doug, when I told somebody I was uh, going to do this conversation about Rasputin, uh, they said, uh, "Oh, you mean the guy who made the predictions <laughs> about the future and it got me thinking about how uh, a history professor of mine used to talk about history was this this constant evolution and constant effort to understand new ideas and bring new ideas to the forefront but it's also about the way things accrete and uh and all of a sudden we have uh, misunderstandings and lack of clarity and and the 12th century and the 14th century and the 19th century all sort of run together for us cuz it's like that new yorker cartoon and uh right it's just just a few few miles away from new york city <laughs> is the end of the world yes, yeah. uh, and and when you were you were writing about Rasputin you you uh you said that well the historical Rasputin pretty hard to find but the but the mythical Rasputin I'll call him that is everywhere and is just as important for our understanding of what happened in that era is that right
1: yeah um that's true i'd like to also f- go back to david though and what he's done here if i can for one second um my previous book, Former People, I wrote uh, when we were living in London, and m- much of it I wrote at the amazing London Library, the the ultimate subscription library that goes back to 1841, um, and I think it's just so great that we have something here now in Seattle that will rival something like the London Library. So anyway, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, it, it is interesting how the centuries uh, merge together. Um, when, uh, when our son was a few years younger, I think about the age of nine, he always referred to things that happened before 2000 as the old days. <laughs> so, um, so in other words, if something started with 19-whatever, those were the old days. Um, and all time sort of melded together, anything pre-2000. Um, and I think that's true for maybe a lot of us unless we're constantly reading history and staying on top of it. Uh, as far as Rasputin goes, he's clearly one of the most Mythologize sort of legendary figures that you can think of in sort of at least recent uh, recent modern history um, and when i when I set out to write the book, um, I really wanted to try to get beyond and behind the myths and and get to the real man as much as one ever can. Um, And I I decided that the way to do that is I had to sort of dig up every little grubby fact that I could about his life, where he lived, where he was on any given day, who he met, what he was doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And that's what took me so long to write the book and and required that I went to so many places to research it. Um, But as I was working through this, it, it hit me that what was equally important in Rasputin's story was less what he was doing or saying, but what people thought he was doing what people thought he was saying. Um, And not those, obviously, after he died, but during his own lifetime. The degree to which he was a legend, this sounds very cliche, a legend in his own lifetime. Um, But he really, truly was. And everybody had their own ideas about Rasputin. And I, I quickly came to the realization that it was the Rasputin in people's heads in Russia before the Revolution that was ultimately much more important, more powerful, and ultimately more destructive to the regime than the Rasputin that actually lived and breathed.
0: Did you find the historical Rasputin? Could you find enough about him to definitively say this is who he was?
1: Um, you know, I think I got as close as one can get. Um, it is it is difficult because there are so many stories about him, and so much of his life is undocumented. Um, he died, he didn't die, he was murdered, at the age of, of 47. And Pretty much the first 30 years of his life are a black hole. There's almost no documentation on the first 30 years of his life. So it's really only those final years that we really have a lot of information. Um, I think I was able to, to dig up a lot of, of, of new bits and pieces that give us a greater understanding of who he was that have been overlooked by previous historians. Um, as my wife can attest, I was away from home for long stretches, uh, which you have to do. Um, I went to seven different countries uh, to work in archives, digging up information. Um, went to Siberia, obviously, where he was fun. And I'll just give you one example of the kind of thing. We've always wondered what he was like as a young man, uh, as a teenager. Um, and there's been all sorts of theories and, and um, stories told about those early years, but they've never really been documented. So I knew I had to go to Siberia for a whole host of reasons, but um, I spent about a week in the city of Tobolsk, uh, which is sort of one of the ancient capitals of Siberia, not far from where he was born. And in the archives in Tobolsk, I made this amazing discovery. Um, uh, two journalists in 1914, pretending to be government officials, went to his hometown and said, we're from the governor general of, of, of Petersburg, and we've been sent to get information on Rasputin. Um, and so this lowly clerk said, well, what, what exactly were you looking for? He said, well, we need his criminal record. And, and this clerk was too intimidated to ask for proof of ID and got out the sort of book of convictions from the local village uh, and went through it and showed him, well, the only thing I can see in here was that as a teenager he had spent two days in jail for offending what was basically the local mayor. Now, it doesn't seem like that big a thing, but no one had ever found this before. And when I saw that, I was like, you know, it was one of those eureka moments. Exactly. So I was able to weave that into the story. And it does give us some idea, again, that there was this rebellious streak to Rasputin that people have often wondered about but couldn't really say definitively. Um, and so I thought that was the kind of thing that I, I looked for and, and found a good number of.
0: All right, I want to come back to how you did all this work. But let me put him in a little bit of historical context. So growing up, in, in that Russian empire, what was life like for somebody like him?
1: Well, he was born uh, into a peasant family in Siberia. Um, and I talk about this in the beginning of the book. Being born in Siberia was different than being born in Russia. And I know people think, well, isn't Siberia Russia? But it's not. Uh, west of the Urals is Russia. East of the Urals is, is Siberia, and it's a very different life with a very different history. There was never any serfdom east of the Urals. and it's often been said that the peasants in Siberia are more independent of spirit, more industrious, uh, less cowed, less you know depressed and beaten down. And you see that in the case of Rasputin himself. But he, like most of, of, of Russian peasants at the time, he was born in 1869. Uh, largely illiterate most of his life, like his family, like most other peasants, uh, learned to work the fields, learned to fish in the rivers. um, And that was going to be sort of his life, sort of a simple life of of work, church services on Sunday, young marriage, raising children, and that sort of thing. And then he had some sort of transformative experience which we still don't fully understand that set him off wandering across siberia and then russia and then even beyond russia in search of enlightenment and religion did he talk but they talk about he talks about it what, Yeah. what that was what he how does he describe it well he describes a couple things i mean he claims that he had visions that he was in the field and the virgin came to him and you know said you must seek god that sort of thing um, in nineteen oh seven he dictated to one of his female followers the story of his life as a Christian pilgrim, what the Russians call a stranik, these people that wandered from monastery to monastery. And he says that literally, you know, the, the Holy Virgin came to him and instructed him that, that he must go, that, you know, he had been called upon to go out and seek God.
0: All right, you so look skeptical. No, no, no. I, I was thinking about how he, uh, he was able to tell that story over and over again to his, his female admirers. Um, but, uh, but what did he... Uh, so what did he do? He sets out? Isn't he married at this point?
1: Yeah, at this point, uh, he was married. Uh, he married in his, in his uh, late teenage years um, to a woman named Praskovia that we know very little bit about. Um, they had many children. Only three of them survived into adulthood. And uh, it was sometime around 1897 when he had this conversion... And started to wander as a strannik, as a, as a religious pilgrim, which was not unusual in Russia at the time. There was well over a million of these peasants wandering from church to church, monastery to monastery, living on alms. They, would, you know, they were basically like beggars crossing the land, um, lived off of you know the goodness in other people who were willing to share with them a bit of food, water, a place to sleep, that sort of thing. And this was, in a sense, his university. This was Rasputin's school if you will he, he did this for many many years traveled the breadth of the Russian Empire and he came in contact with basically every element that was in Russia um, and he worked as a laborer he worked in all sorts of sort of manual jobs to, to earn a bit of money to keep moving across the land and he came in contact with all these powerful holy figures at these religious sites that helped uh, develop his own spiritual side
0: socially and uh, politically w- what, why were these people so prevalent in Russia, and how were they shaping Russian culture at that point?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting. The The late Tsarist period, late 19th, early 20th century, is this era of great religious upheaval, both among the masses and among the elites in places like Moscow and Petersburg. There's a sense of, of crisis, of spiritual crisis, and a sense that um, people were were seeking new forms of religious and spiritual experience on, on different levels throughout society. Um, and, and Rasputin sort of is, was a reflection of this search, this sense of seeking new answers, new ways of thinking about what it meant to be a Christian, about what the spiritual in human life was all about. And in that sense, he's not unique. Sometimes in biographies, you think that, that Rasputin stands out as this strange Phenomenon in Russia at the time, but no, in that sense, he's very much uh, attuned to what is happening in Russia.
0: How far off the mainstream religion is he at this point? The powers that are that are you know determining religious orthodoxy. Uh,
1: that's a good question because throughout his life, he is uh, often viewed as a, as an apostate, as somebody who has embraced these strange mystical cults that were were popular, especially among the masses in Russia. Um, I talk a lot a bit about this in the book. In my opinion, based on the information we have, and there were several investigations into this during his lifetime, mostly instigated by his enemies who wanted to prove that he was a member of one of these uh, sort of quasi-illegal cults. Um, I think he was a true orthodox believer, uh, but I think he understood orthodoxy sort of in his own way which is maybe convenient. I don't know. Um, but he, he put his own stamp on what it meant to be an Orthodox believer, uh, on what true faith meant, and how one practiced that faith, and, and the tenets one had to live by. Um, he was obviously for some people very controversial, but again, he was not alone in that. You had a lot of other mystics, holy men, coming up from the lower orders, if you will, um, who were quite popular, many of whom had ideas much more outlandish and crazy than Rasputin had. Like what? Um, make sure the audience is old enough for this sort of conversation. Uh, <laughs> there, I talk uh, about this uh, where I sort of sketch the, the religious um, atmosphere of, of Russia at the time. There were some really, really bizarre folks out there. Um, they were people who sort of set them up as, as, as basically gods on earth, as sort of, you know, the, the reincarnation of Christ. And they created all sorts of bizarre cults uh, in which they would attract followers and often subject them to the most bizarre tortures, um, humiliations. Um, typically, they were men, but there were women as well who led these cults. Um, uh, sex was always at the center of most of their activities. Uh, Many of the women in the cult would have to become the, you know, lovers of the local deity, if you will. There was one uh, individual, some of these men and women were arrested, uh, imprisoned or exiled to Siberia for their actions. There was one um, holy man, the sort of charismatic holy figure in Petersburg at the time, who would go around and get the women in his group uh, impregnated. Then they would have babies, uh, and then he would force them to give up the babies and would put them in, in various orphanages without the parents knowing as a way of, of sort of controlling and manipulating them. I mean, things way beyond that, that Rasputin ever ever got up to that and make him, in fact, seem maybe less exciting uh, than people would like to think.
0: Yeah. Can I, can I leap out just for a minute? So the great reawakenings that were happening in the United States, um, there were some F- Aspects of religious reawakening in in Europe, is it all part of the same push, or are the Russians because it's a different church and everything just very different?
1: No, I think there is a connection um, uh, you know sp- um, spiritualism and the idea of calling up you know your dead ancestors and that sort of thing much of that came out of you know, the United States, right? Out of New York and things like that spread to England. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle very much believed that we could make contact with the spirit world um, and then spread across Western Europe and into, and into Russia. So there's definitely, I would say, a broader um, cultural phenomenon going on in the 1870s all the way up until about World War I that affects the United States, England, and Europe, and Russia. Um, some might argue that in true Russian fashion, they take things a little bit further maybe than it went in, in other places. But it, was, it, was, it definitely needs to be seen, I think, as not something unique to Russia, that this is a broader cultural phenomenon um, and, and gripped not just uh, sort of peasants and, and even part of the worker, workers' population, but clearly the upper classes, very much so.
0: All right. So what's the path now? So here's this, he's been wandering, wandering in the desert. How does he end up becoming a confidant of of the Romanovs?
1: Well, throughout this, you know, decades uh, of wandering as a a pilgrim, and what he would typically do is he would go out in the, you know, in the summer, and then he'd often come back maybe five, six months later. Sometimes he'd be gone for several years, which is truly remarkable when you think about it, how his family survived, you know, with him away, uh, which did not endear him to his father, by the way. Um, who was left to do most of the work. Um, he started getting uh, attention increasingly in the larger cities of the empire, places like uh, Novgorod uh, and then eventually Kiev. He goes to Kiev, which is one of the great, obviously, religious centers for the Ukraine and for, and for Russia. And he begins to attract the attention of the clergy in these cities, at the big monasteries and at the large churches. Um, and they are truly impressed with sort of the religious energy that seems to emanate from him, his knowledge of of the Bible that he seems to know sort of um, inside and out, even though he can barely read and write at this point. He does gain sort of rudimentary literacy. Um, And the degree to which he combines insights into the Bible with native peasant knowledge and wisdom about life in general is something that that increasingly the clergy are drawn to and find exciting and find almost as a way to breathe new life into the church. Because at this time, much of the church is is largely a bureaucratic organization. Many of the churchmen, the leaders of the church, are almost like functionaries. They're almost like civil servants, if you will. Um, And some of them look to these simple holy men as a way to revitalize the church. So he gets noticed in Kiev and one of the bishops there says, you need to go to Petersburg. And he goes to Petersburg with a letter of introduction where he meets a man by the name of Feofan, who is in fact looking for these representative religious holy men from the masses, from the peasant masses and is completely impressed by Rasputin and his knowledge. Looking
0: for him for just the purpose you said, they, 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 they feel something lacking and they want something to re-energize.
1: Exactly, this is a way to revitalize the church and also to help bring the church and its elite wings, the, the upper clergy and the upper classes, back in touch with the humble Russian peasant, right? He's a bridge in a sense between the two classes. From Feyafan, he gets to know uh, members of the Romanov family, who are, again, looking for such exemplars uh, from, the, from the local masses, from the people. And from there, he is introduced to Nicholas and Alexandra at court uh, in 1905. Take a drink. Thank um, you.
0: Uh, I don't want to do too much. And I'm not trying to be as sarcastic, but he sounds a little bit like Chauncey Gardner. <laughs> so how how... How real was, were his stories? How profound were his tales?
1: You know, that's, that's, that's tough. I mean, and that goes to a, a whole host of questions about Respute. You know, was he sincere? Was he authentic? Was this an act? You know, was this done with a wink and a nod? And then, you know, when he was out of sight of Nicholas and Alexander, was he just getting drunk and telling how he'd conned, you know, the Emperor and the Empress? Um, in my reading, his religious faith was truly genuine. Um, His knowledge of human psychology, from what we can tell, was quite impressive, much of which came from, again, his years and years of just moving among all sorts of people. He understood people quite well, at least in the early years. Last several years of his life, um, he really gives himself into the bottle, and I would say those powers greatly diminish. Uh but at that point, he very much believes uh he believes in what he's saying. He left behind um many of his sayings and aphorisms um which were written down typically by his followers um or by uh the Empress Alexandra and even her her daughters would write down in their notebooks which are in the archives in Moscow the sayings that he would would have and I have a chapter in the book about you know resputing the Christian philosopher, if you will, and there's nothing terribly profound in there. It's all very, um, it's all very sort of simple and direct. Much of it is sort of, you know, the, the beauty of nature and how we can see God in the natural world and that sort of thing. Um, but there is a message in there, and it's a message that's interesting. He was a very harsh critic of the upper classes, particularly of the nobility, which he felt were nothing better than vampires that lived off the sweat and toil of the peasant classes. And this is a theme that runs throughout everything. And he's uh, you know, uh, uh, constantly going on about the artifice of the upper classes, the parasitism of the upper classes, and the truly wondrous, holy nature of, of the Russian peasantry. Um, and this is the kind of thing that I, I, I talk a bit about uh, in the book.
0: Um, part of the reason he becomes so important to... The, the Tsarina, is because of uh, some incidents with their son and, and how he reacts to, uh, to his illness vis a vis the doctors that she has around them. So, is, is that one of the critical moments?
1: Well, that's what, you know, that's an interesting thing. I, um, in the 1960s, uh, Robert Massey published his phenomenal bestseller, Nicholas and Alexandra. I know Bob. He's a wonderful historian. I have nothing but respect for him. Um, but it's a very personal book. Uh, Robert Massey's son has hemophilia. And, and Robert Massey wrote it very much uh, as, as a father of a sick child. And I think on a very, to a very real degree... Um, his reality, as, as a father, shapes the way he sees the relationship between uh, Nicholas Alexander Sputin and Alexei Tsarevich, the son. Um, I was shocked because I, like everyone else, had thought this was the key to understanding that relationship. But through the course of the research for my book, I came to see it completely differently. Ultimately, what Alexandra wanted was less someone to keep her son healthy and alive, or at least alive, she wanted a backbone for her husband. She knew from the beginning that Nicholas was a weak man, and she loved him dearly. That's clear from their letters, um, which are amazing to read. Um, But she knew from the get-go that Nicholas was weak, and that he was not cut out to be czar. A pillow, I
0: believe, is a phrase you used.
1: Yes, it was said that Nicholas was like a pillow, and that he always showed the imprint, the impression of the last person he talked with. Basically sat on him. and if you, if, you, if you read the letters that Nicholas and Alexandra exchanged, it's very clear that Rasputin is, one might even say, the balls, if you will, that she felt her husband lacked. And she's constantly saying, Rasputin says do this. You must do this. Um, I met with you know, our friend, as they called Rasputin, and our friend says, you know, don't do this. Don't appoint this person. You must be strong. Now, when the ministers try to get you to change your mind, think of Grigory. Um, She sends uh, her husband uh, Rasputin's comb and says, before the next meeting with the ministers, make sure you comb your beard and hair with the comb of our friend. This will give you the strength that you need to stand up to the ministers. Um, And so I came away, after years of going through all this and thinking about it, coming to the the realization that um, ultimately the key relationship is Nicholas, Alexandra, and Rasputin which is not to say that that the illness of Alexei is not important, because she did believe that uh, Rasputin had the power to keep Alexei alive, and she did rely on that. Um, But a couple things that I would just add that that got me to sort of shape my thinking about that. One thing is, none of the previous biographies talk much about this mysterious Frenchman uh, by the name of Monsieur Philippe, and I have a whole fairly long chapter on Mr. Monsieur, Monsieur Philippe who came into the lives of Nicholas and Alexandra in 1900. He was from Lyon, a seer, magnetizer, faith healer, guru of all sorts. He came to the court of Nicholas and Alexandra and they were completely taken with him. And they basically fell in love with him and thought he could do everything. And and both Nicholas and Alexandra looked to Monsieur Philippe to guide them in all matters, including politics. So well before Rasputin is even there, uh, they are looking to this, you know, soothsayer, uh, who truly was a charlatan. I mean, we can talk about Rasputin. This guy was clearly a fake. He was bogus all the way. But they completely believed him. And this went on for a number of years until finally, members of the Romanov extended family and powerful figures at court said, this man has to go. This is, this is, this is not okay. Um, and when he's kicked out, basically, he says, just wait, another friend will appear. Be ready for him. And that's Rasputin coming in. And that's, uh, that's separate of the illness of, of Alexei. So I think that's something that is maybe a little bit different in my book than we've come to believe in the past. Mm. But if I can talk about the healing, one thing that has been interesting is, um, you know, to what extent was Rasputin really a faith healer, and was he able to keep Alexei alive and, and you know, prevent the bleeding, uh, given his hemophilia? Um, I tried to get, get at this from a whole number of angles, and one of the things that was most fruitful, and I won't go on at length about it, but is the degree to which in, in recent time there's been this explosion of interest among serious scientific researchers and medical doctors in the whole mind-body connection. And the degree to which, you know, mind controls body. Harvard now has a mind-body institute. UCLA has one. Um, The degree to which the placebo effect in all its various forms is truly powerful and can truly shape medical outcomes, we're only now beginning to understand that. There's a great book that just came out by a British... uh, well, she has a PhD, I think, in maybe genetics, and she's also a writer named Joe Marchant called Cure that goes into all of this new cutting research that's being done that's fascinating. And that sort of helped me, I think, understand exactly what it was that Rasputin was able to offer Alexei. And I won't give it away. We could talk more about it later, but that's also, I think, crucial to understanding that part.
0: All right, I won't give it away either. Um,
1: <laughs> when, uh, maybe I just did. <coughs>
0: Well, there's the, isn't there a whole argument that says Rasputin just forestalled treatment by some of these doctors that was maybe not very helpful treatment just by being there and, and saying, well, you know, we're going to take this other path for a while and just stop these guys from doing things that maybe just weren't, weren't the best things to be done?
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Um, and, you know, I think Robert Massey uh, in his book was driving at this, and I think he was correct that basically, you know, there was no way to really treat— uh, hemophilia, the doctors didn't really know what to do and they were constantly poking and prodding and bending and, and that just meant the blood kept flowing and flowing and got worse and worse and Rasputin's advice was always tell the doctors to leave him alone, he will be fine he'll live, he'll be alright um, and, in, and in some of the books in the past um, biographers historians have, have said you know, oh Alexander was so naive to listen to, to Rasputin, you know why would she listen to you know, him and not the doctors and that sort of thing? But I came to a totally different conclusion that since there was no way to treat it and since the doctors were exacerbating the condition and the suffering, Rasputin's advice was the only correct advice. And it was the power of, I think, and you can't really prove this, but I think it was the power of Alexandra's faith in Rasputin that she then instilled in her son is probably what helped ease his suffering, and and help you know lessen the the, the the bleeding, and ultimately helped keep him alive. And there was nothing else she had to give him, so she gave him the only thing she could. Um, th- there's, I'll, I'll just jump ahead to one thing
0: because I, I want to get questions from folks too. But uh, why did he become somebody who so many people wanted to undermine, get? get rid of, and ultimately, murder?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good question, um, and runs, obviously, throughout the book. Uh, it goes back to that earlier point about what, what became equally important in researching and writing it was the Rasputin in people's heads. I mean, there's a couple things that are going on. Nicholas and Alexandra were very standoffish with the other powerful families of the realm, um, they did not embrace the other uh, members of the Romanov family. Uh, they kept the powerful aristocratic clans at an arm's length and were very standoffish. And this is something that greatly offended the, the leading powerful families of, of the empire. You know, what, what is this that we are somehow not good enough to be part of their lives? And then along comes Monsieur Philippe, and then along comes a figure like Rasputin, and people are like, wait a minute. You know, I'm Count so-and-so or Prince so-and-so. I'm not invited to court. I'm not you know, permitted into the private chambers. And this peasant is? Uh, and it, it created such a negative backlash that it helped drive a wedge between the crown and, and the elite. And the elite started making up all sorts of stories, all sorts of slander and gossip. Um, which helped undermine the legitimacy of the throne, especially among the elite that the, the crown needed to you know, stay in power. That was one element. and Then on the other side of the political spectrum, members of the, of the revolutionary left very quickly realized that Rasputin was just what they needed. He was a perfect tool that they could use to attack the regime. Uh, and again, they began making up all sorts of wild claims about his debauchery, um, that he was sleeping with the empress and the daughters of the czar, that he was, in fact, the true power behind the throne, appointing ministers and dismissing ministers. Uh, and, in, and in their critique, this becomes a way of arguing of the need for revolution, that, that Rasputin was a sign and a symptom of the bankruptcy of the czarist regime. So you get... Rasputin being attacked both from the, if you will, from the right and from the left, although for, ve- for differing reasons. Those on the right claim that they are attacking Rasputin because they want to save the regime, right? Because his presence sullies the prestige of, of the throne. And then on the left you get it because they are trying to in fact undermine it. And so he becomes this sort of tennis ball that's being whacked back and forth. And it must be said, and I talk about this a lot in the book, he gave them plenty of ammunition. Um, but it's often not clear, you know you talk about women. He had lovers, he admitted this, his wife admitted it. his daughter Maria, admitted it in her in her memoirs. Um, he did have a thing for women he had he had a he was creepy. Um, you know, <laughs> women would sit next to him, and he just couldn't you know stop pawing them and telling them how beautiful they were and and that kind of thing. Um, he didn't see this as in any way sort of you know at odds with his faith. He felt that you know. Our, our, our love and our desire and our passion is something given to us by God. Why should we deny that? He was not into bourgeois morality. He was not gonna you know, recognize those sorts of limits. Um, so there's that. But again, there's other things that, that um, are fascinating that I, I still am not really sure I have a grasp on. In, in one of the main archives in Moscow, I was fortunate to get access to the police files. Um, he was constantly being followed by the police for various reasons, both to protect him and to gather compromising material and information on him. Um, And if we are to believe these police files, he was often picking up prostitutes in Petersburg. Um, And they would claim to interview these prostitutes. Now the question is, can we believe the police records? Uh, Because oftentimes the people in charge of the police were Rasputin's biggest enemies. Um, and so sometimes you can just kind of go around and around with some of this stuff and not ever really be sure. It's like some sort of a weird echo chamber, you know, what's true and what's not.
0: You dove into all this literature and there was a whole industry of this literature
1: during his life, right?
0: And then as soon as he was murdered, there were people writing books about him, movies being made, books continuing to be written. Um, what's the, other than our own titillation with that sort of character, what's the appeal for all of us, and then I'll ask what, your appeal, what the appeal for you is.
1: You know, there aren't many people, when you think about uh, Russian history, there aren't many of these names that come up that just sort of grab you. You know, there's Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Ivan the Terrible, Lenin, Stalin, Nicholas, uh, and Rasputin. And I think one of the things that fascinates is is the sort of the unknowability of him. You know, he's this kind of cipher. You know, was he... Um, was he a devil, was he the saint? You know, the, the, one of the early books written on him by one of his greatest enemies who tried twice to have him killed, uh, this bizarre priest named Iliador, uh, who wrote a, one of the first books on him called Holy Devil. And so there's this dual nature about him, or what people assume was a dual nature. So I think there's, there's this endless fascination with, about him as a person and where he comes from. And to be honest, I think it's when he arrives on the scene. It's his connection to the doomed, tragic Nicholas and Alexandra. Um, if, the, if Rasputin had been at the court of I don't know, Paul I in the early part of the 19th century, we probably wouldn't care that much about him. But it, that he's there at this moment when the 300 year Romanov dynasty comes unglued and crashes in such epic you know, fashion, I think that's part of the, part of the fascination. As for me, uh, it grew out of my previous book, which is often how I go from one book to the next. My previous book was former people on the the fate of the Russian nobility after 1917. One of the early sections of the book, I tried to describe what life was like in the final years of the Romanov dynasty, and I couldn't get away from the fact that every sort of source that I looked at, Rasputin was always there. Um, and that struck me because I'm an academically trained uh, historian. I have a PhD at UCLA. And if I had gone in to my advisor and said, I'd like to do a PhD on dis- uh, dissertation on and they would have said, get out of here. I mean, it wasn't, it's not considered serious. I mean, writing a book like this as a scholar is a form of you know, career suicide. Um, but I think he's important and fascinating. And um, he's one of these figures that we do keep coming back to because he's, uh, he is an enigma.
0: What strikes me is how much material is available. You went all over, how how many archives did you say? Seven archives?
1: Well, seven countries. Seven countries? Yeah.
0: I'm surprised that that much was saved. I thought that Russia had burned everything, (laughs) but not at all.
1: No. Well, Russia fortunately hasn't burned everything. The Russians like to save paper for the most part, which is a good thing. Um, And I, I sort of knew, you know, one of the things, you know, Rasputin is murdered at the end of 1916. Uh, So we're coming up on the 100-year anniversary. Um, The country is plunged into revolution, then civil war. uh, And basically, after that, the archives on Rasputin were closed. You couldn't really research him. Um, So all that we had to go on were sort of published memoirs of the various figures involved in his life. Basically, all of his enemies. So, you know, everything that we really knew about him was stuff that had been written by people that hated him or killed him or wanted to kill him. Not a good basis for constructing an honest uh, assessment. So I realized that if I'm going to do this book and to do it properly, you've got to go to the archives. Um, and and that's what I did. So, you know, the two or three archives in Moscow, two or three in Petersburg, uh, three places in Siberia, various places in, in London, Cambridge, uh, Stanford... Berkeley, um, Columbia, you know, Paris, I went to Paris, Berlin, I went to Vienna, um, and, and you might think, well, well why, I mean, that's kind of stupid, um, but just a couple examples, one of the things, that p- myths that was always told about Rasputin was that during World War I, he was a German spy, and that he and Alexander were feeding secrets to the Germans. Now, You'd think, well, that's nonsense. It is nonsense, of course. But you still get people writing. Just uh, 10 years ago, a book came out on Rasputin by a reputable scholar in Russia that, you know, beyond any doubt, he was a German spy. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, if he's a German spy, it would show up in the archives in Germany. But no one had bothered to take a look. So I went and spent a week in Berlin working in the political archive of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I had a great time. I mean, for me, it's like every day is Christmas. You know, every day you get these new documents, you don't know what you're going to get. And indeed, the Germans in 1915-16 were obsessed with Rasputin. They had all sorts of stuff on him. But they thought he was a British spy. (laughs) And they were trying to figure out, well, how can we turn him to become a German spy? Um, and there was all these people sending information, and so that's just one example of of why I felt I had to go to all these places. And it adds a richness and complexity to the book that I I hope um, will be new and and fresh and and interesting.
0: Any stones unturned at this point?
1: Do you think you got it all? Do I think? No, you can never think maybe you got it all. There 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 probably is something somewhere that um, that I'm missing and and. You know, a lot of it is just, uh, you know, boring hard work, and a lot of it too is just dumb luck. I was, uh, for years, I'd been trying to get these police files at the archive in Moscow, and I was always being told when I'd put in a a request that, well, these are with the director of the archive; you can't have them. And this went on for years, and I'm like, what? Come on! I mean, how long can he have them, really? Um, So I was in England at a literary festival. Hey, on, on. Hey NY Liter- Literary Festival giving a talk on my last book and after it this woman comes up to me and says I enjoyed your talk very much and we started chatting and turns out she was uh, from Russia, lives in London, was a, a art historian specialist in Russian history and teaches at the Courtauld Institute there. We started talking and she's like well, what are you doing now? I So well, I'm writing a book on Rasputin blah blah blah. And I said yeah but you know still some things I can't seem to get like these police files at the state archive of the Russian Federation. <coughs> And she goes, oh, well, my godfather's the director of the archive. <laughs> I said, really? So he's the guy that's been holding on to these. And she goes, oh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll call Sergei. We'll, we'll make something happen. So sure enough, she calls her godfather, who's the head of the archive. And a few months later, I go over there. Uh, unfortunately, I only had two days. Um, but I met with Sergei Mironenka, nice man, head of the, this major archive in Moscow. And there they were on his desk, stacked up like this. And I had two days to try to get through them. Um, I spent two days without eating, going to the bathroom, (laughs) sleeping, um, and found some amazing uh, things in there. But again, there was just stupid luck. you know. And if I hadn't run into this woman and hadn't mentioned this, I never would have probably gotten to see those archives, those documents.
0: All right, can I ask one last question real quick? Because this sounds like your next book. Iliador? The, the, mad, the, the, the mad priest? The mad priest.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Oftentimes you'll hear references to Rasputin as the mad monk, which is not true. First of all, he was not a monk. He was not a priest. He never took orders. Uh, the mad monk was uh, a man named Sergei Trufanov who uh, took orders and became a monk known as Iliador, who's one of the most bizarre characters in the book. He's much more bizarre than Rasputin. Um He was a a, a virulent anti-Semite. He felt the Tsar was too easy on the Jews. Um, Very much uh, against the West, any Western influence. Um, Constantly giving these haranguing speeches to vast crowds in Russia about the need to to kill the Jews and to save Russia. Just a really ugly, despicable uh, figure. Um, He becomes close with Rasputin uh, and then hopes to overthrow Rasputin and become you know, the man at court, um, but he fails miserably and then decides that the rest of his life he's going to devote to destroying Rasputin. Um, he tries to have him murdered. He sends one of his female followers, a woman named Hyonya uh, Guseva, who lacked a nose. I have a photograph of her. It's just really creepy. Um, and she stabbed Rasputin uh, in 1914, almost killed him. Really uh, s- remarkable that he survived. Um, the police then go after Iliador because of the attempted murder. He dresses up as a woman, manages to escape uh, with the help of Maxime Gorky, the famous writer, uh, and and makes it out uh, to, to uh, Oslo where he starts writing a book against uh, Rasputin, um, uh, which becomes known as the Holy Devil, um, uh, trying to bring down. He ends up later – it's just bizarre – he ends up later in New York, Um, where he is befriended by Jewish groups who hate Tsarist Russia. Uh, and So this virulent anti-Semite is now working with Jewish groups in New York um, to help bring down uh, the Romanov dynasty through propaganda and all sorts of things. It gets weirder and weirder. He eventually then later goes into um, uh, the film industry. Uh, And he stars in a number of films in 1917, 1918. Uh, One of them is The Fall of the Romanovs. And he has grand visions that he is going to become a movie star. I want to say Hollywood movie star, but it isn't Hollywood yet. It's Fort Lee, New Jersey, which was the origins of the film industry in this country. You could write, it just gets weirder, and then I won't go on. But (laughs) you get the idea. He ends up, I'll just end this. He (laughs) He ends up staying in New York... Um, and um, he loses all his money in the crash in '29. His wife and kids leave him. He becomes a janitor uh, in Manhattan at like you know some major life insurance firm, uh, and dies in in '52. Uh, so I don't know. And my agent said it's interesting, but no one's going to buy that book.
0: I don't know. That's a great story.
1: He was, and this is again what uh, you know. One of the things that led me to believe that he was more Christian than all these other people who claimed they were Christian, he was always an opponent of war. Um, during the, the first and second Balkan Wars, which were, I know all of you have read up a lot on those, um, right before World War uh, I, you had two wars in the Balkans. All of the sort of uh, ministers, not all, but many of the ministers at court, much of the popular opinion in Russia wanted to get involved in these wars. And, and Rasputin kept saying to, to Nicholas, do not go to war. To spill blood is, is, is unchristian. To go to war is unchristian. We don't kill. Um, uh, he then, again, at the beginning, uh, right before World War I, which is when he was stabbed by this noseless woman in Siberia and almost died, he's lying in a hospital in the city of Tumien in, in Siberia where he was uh, recuperating. And he was sending telegrams. Uh, throughout the summer of 1914 after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and Sarajevo saying, don't go to war. Don't go to war. Don't listen you know, to the voices calling for war. And he's getting no response. So he, he then wrote this incredibly prophetic uh, letter to the Tsar um, saying, I see dark clouds. I see seas of blood. I see unending misery. You know, I see the end of times. I see nothing good that could come from going to war. And he sent this letter to Nicholas. Um, You know, obviously Nicholas did not listen. But then again, could Nicholas have withstood voices around him calling for war? None of the emperors did uh, at the time. Um, But it is amazing to think. It's one of these sort of what-if moments. Um, You know, what if Nicholas had listened to him? and had not gone to war, you know, the course of the 20th century would have been completely different. And it is remarkable, and again, I think something that has been lost in Rasputin's uh, biography is that he really was, and it is true, he was a man of peace. He was opposed to war throughout his life at every step. He never thought it was the right thing to do, and he thought it was fundamentally against Christian teaching. Um, And when I first heard that story about the letter, I thought, oh, this has to be bogus. This, This can't be real. But sure enough, the Beinecke Library at Yale University has this letter. The Tsar kept the letter, and when the family uh, was sent into exile after the fall of the monarchy, um, they ended up in Tobolsk, where, which was very close to where Rasputin had lived. Um, and elements, you know, outside the the uh, you know the house where they were being kept, made contact with them, and they were able to exchange things the czar made sure that this letter made its way back to Rasputin's family. And Rasputin's daughter, Maria, who later escaped Russia, kept this letter and later sold it in Vienna. And then it was then later donated to, to Yale University. So you can actually, as I did, go and, and hold this letter in your hand. And you think, if he had listened, how our lives all would have been very different. Um, in terms of his you know, concrete influence on politics. Um, it was actually quite minimal, and it was only really in the last year or two of his life where he's really trying to to shape uh, what is happening. Once the war begins, he never questions the war, and he continues to support the war effort, um, and he continues to tell Nicholas over and over, we will be victorious. God is on our side. Um, the way in which... You know, he really does try to get his hands on politics is through the, um, the appointing of various ministers, um, whether it's the minister of agriculture or the minister of war. And he starts giving advice on who he thinks would be good in these, these roles and positions. Typically, he's ignored. Um, but there are occasions where Nicholas will listen. Um, and it's usually not just Rasputin saying this to, to the czar, but it's Rasputin saying it to Alexandra and then Alexandra writing to the czar and saying, this is what, uh, you know, our friend thinks we need to do. Most of the time, this advice is ignored. Um, he's also very much um, shaping what's going on in terms of church hierarchy, about who should be the head of the church and that sort of thing. Again, most of this is happening in the later years. And part of it um, is reactive in nature. Um, and this is something that I also tried to bring out in the book, is, you know, Rasputin knew that the the ministers hated him. And not only did they hate him, but at times they tried to off him. Uh, The minister of interior, a man named Kvastov, at the end of 1915, 1916, who was in charge of all the security apparatus and the police and the gendarme, um, basically cooked up a plot to murder Rasputin. Um, And so part of Rasputin's wanting to be involved in appointing people was very much wanting to see that people were appointed who would be friendly to him, would be less likely to kill him. Um, So there's that. One of the things that he pushed for, again, on a simplistic level, and maybe it wouldn't have made any difference, but he was never, became a, a, a creature of court. He always kept his home in Siberia and was always traveling, was always moving among the people. And he was one who quickly came to see that there was hunger and there was suffering and the people needed food, they needed heating uh, fuel and oil and those sorts of things, especially during the final years of the regime. And he was constantly saying, there are bread lines, there are problems in the city. You need to stop sending troops to the front. You need to be taking those trains, picking up grain and bringing it to the cities. The cities are starving and that is dangerous. Um, Again, this advice was ignored. Whether or not it might have changed this ultimate outcome is, is hard to say. So that's really what was happening what people were saying knew no, no bounds. You know, people were claiming that literally, you know, he was running the country, he was making all the decisions, that he lived in the palace, that he was sleeping with Alexandra, that he was sleeping with the other daughters, that in fact one of the daughters, Tatiana, was pregnant with his child. Um, right towards the end, there was a myth that took hold that uh, Rasputin, together with a Tibetan doctor named Badmayev, were slipping drugs to the Tsar and had what they called zombified him. And so that Nicholas was basically catatonic and was out of it. Um, and that uh, Rasputin together with this Tibetan doctor and with the approval of Alexandra had basically made him you know, a non-factor in running the country. Thus, they could control everything. I mean, the, the rumors of, of, of what he was able to control really just flourished like crazy in the final couple of years. And again, much of this was driven as a way to undermine the regime by those, uh, especially on the left. Yeah, the murder, the murder. Yeah, we didn't get to the murder. Um, uh, this, again, is, is one of those things. There's two books that were most important in shaping the myth of Rasputin, especially in the West. The first was The Holy Devil, uh, written by Iliador, the so-called mad monk of Russia. The second were the memoirs of Prince Felix Yusupov, who was obviously one of the men responsible for, ki- for killing um, uh, Rasputin. Now, you, everyone, if they know anything about Rasputin, is usually that you know, he was impossible to kill, that they tried to poison him, they tried to shoot him, and that eventually they threw him in the freezing waters of the Neva River, and only then did he drown. It's all nonsense. Um, Prince Felix Yusupov is one of the more reprehensible characters in my book, a a, a person I I found it very difficult to try to remain any sort of um, disinterested, objective approach for. Um, This is a man who uh, invited Rasputin into his home under false pretenses so that he could murder him in cold blood, along with four other men who are all well-armed. I talk a lot about in the book about was there poison or wasn't there poison, Um, There probably wasn't poison Um, and this notion that uh, Rasputin was such a powerful force and in fact in his memoirs Yusupov calls him Satan. Says basically that this was Satan incarnate in front of him. Well of course that's very self-aggrandizing for Prince Yusupov, right? It sounds much better to say I alone killed Satan as opposed to I shot a defenseless unarmed man in my basement. Um, And I talk a bit bit in the book about sort of the whole literary production that goes on in Yusupov's memoirs about the way he tries to justify the murder. Um, In Petersburg, there's the, um, what's it called again? The State Museum for the Political History of Russia and in that museum, in one of their archival holdings, are the actual autopsy photographs that were taken of Rasputin after his body was pulled from the from the waters of the Neva. And it's it's ghastly to hold those originals in your hand. Um, they have pictures of him on the ice, you know, like this. Uh, and then uh, once the autopsy had begun, he was shot three times, once in the front, once in the back. And then there's what the Russians call the the control shot. And you can see it in the autopsy photograph. He had a bullet that went right through his forehead. So probably what happened, as best as we can tell, they got Rasputin over to the Yusupov palace. Um, He thought there would be a party. He thought he was going to meet Yusupov's uh, lovely young bride. Um, They got him as drunk as they could. Maybe gave him poison. Maybe didn't give him poison. And then at one point... One of them, either probably Prince Yusupov, pulled out a handgun and shot him pretty much at point blank in the front. Um, Yusupov freaked out, uh, thought he had killed uh, uh, Rasputin, ran upstairs where his co-conspirators were waiting and basically said, I think I got it, he's done, I shot him. Um, in between that upstairs level and the cellar where he was shot is a little staircase and halfway up was a door leading out to a courtyard. Yusupov was probably just severely wounded. uh, Yusupov, Rasputin, managed to get up those half stairs out the door into the courtyard. At some point, the killers went downstairs. They see he's gone, and they see the trail of blood going out into the courtyard. This is now early in the hours of December 17th. Um, They probably saw him trying to make his getaway, stumbling across the snowy courtyard, put a bullet into his back. He fell, and then they went up and put a final shot uh, right through his forehead, bundled him up, put him in a car, drove out to sort of the edge of the city where they had already found a place and threw him over uh, the bridge into the water. Uh, but he was definitely, definitely dead by that time. Just one side note, if I may. There, you'll see that there's been an attempt by some, some British historians to claim that uh, the, the actual man who pulled the trigger was a British agent, that he was killed by British intelligence agents uh, that night. And they claim that if you look at that photo of the bullet wound on his forehead, it has a certain distinct marking, and that certain distinct marking is made by a Webb-Scottley revolver that was the official sidearm of all British forces in World War I, thus meaning he was killed by an English agent. And again, who can tell? It's just a smudgy-looking mark. But, again, how sometimes just serendipity of working in the archives. Among those voluminous police files that I was just, by happenstance, able to go through, I'm leafing them, reading them as fast as I can, and I come to a little receipt from, uh, I believe it was early uh, 1916, for a colonel who was one of the agents monitoring Rasputin's behavior and actions in those days. And it was a receipt that this Russian uh, colonel has been given for his use a Webley Scott revolver. So maybe it was a Webley Scott, but that doesn't mean it was an Englishman on the other end of it. When's the book coming out? Uh, The book will be out in November. um, And hopefully people will not have forgotten by then. But it's the kind of thing that would make a great Christmas gift. Okay, yeah, so the book that's on sale is my previous book, uh, which is called Former People, The Final Days of the Russian Aristocracy. Um, and just as Rasputin sort of grew out of that book, Former People grew out of a previous book I wrote, which was called The Pearl, um, which sounds like fiction. When I used to tell people about it, people thought it was fiction, but it's actually a true story of, uh, of Count Nikolai Sheremetev, who was this fabulously wealthy Russian aristocrat in the 18th century, sort of in the era of Catherine the Great, um, and his love and passion was theater, especially opera and ballet. Now, this is a man who owned three hundred, no, no two hundred thousand serfs. His grandson owned three hundred thousand serfs. He owned two hundred thousand serfs, um, which were, in a sense, basically slaves. It was basically a slave economy in those days. And to put it in some sort of context the largest slave over in this country before the Civil War had around 1,200 slaves. So that man would have been a pauper next to Prince Cheremetev. But well, what he did was he would go out and, and his overseers uh, would find attractive young boys and girls with good uh, singing voices, take them from their families, and train them to be performers in his own private surf opera company. And he fell madly in love with one of these uh, young women, a woman named Praskovia, uh, who performed as the pearl. So anyway, I told the story of this, uh, of this illicit uh, of affair, romance, call it whatever you will, um, between Count Sheremetyev and Praskovia. And to do that, I, I felt I needed to find descendants of this family, the Sheremetyev family. Uh, and sure enough, some of the descendants of the Sheremetyevs now live in the United States. And I, I got in touch with them and got to know them wanting to learn more about the story from the 18th century. Um, and I remember one night having dinner in Connecticut, Bridgeport, Connecticut, with Nikita Sherimaitif and his wife, Maiko, and I noticed they had all these beautiful Russian things on their walls. And I said, how did your family get all this stuff out after the revolution? I mean, you must have had to flee and, you know, that kind of thing. And we were having dinner, and Nikita, sadly no longer with us, but was a wonderful man, they both were... Uh, sort of laughed and he had a little glint in his eye and he held up a little like silver spoon or fork or something and he said, Douglas, this is all that remains of the Sheremetia fortune, um, that they had bought all this stuff later in emigration. And he started to talk a little bit about how his family had fled um, uh, with basically nothing. And I, I got intrigued about what it would have been like to have been a family that for literally hundreds of years had been incredibly powerful and wealthy and influential and then overnight, the revolution happens, and you are now hunted, which the family was. A great many of the family were killed during the revolution and, and later. So that's sort of how I got interested in, in former people. Um, it, it's an amazing story. It's a sad story. Um, but uh, it's a powerful part of, of Russia in the 20th century that I think a lot of people don't know about. Rasputin today, it's, it's funny. There's, there's not much there to remind you of, of Rasputin. Um, I I went to uh, sixty Vor Gorokhovaya Street in in Petersburg when I was there a few years ago, which is where he had his last apartment, his most famous apartment. There's no plaque. Um, there is a Rasputin hair salon uh, on the ground floor, um, and I I waited until someone was was coming uh, coming out, and then I snuck in through the the locked gate, and I went up the stairs that he would have climbed, and I knew where his apartment was and. And I have to say, I, I debated ringing and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, there's not much discussion of him. There's not much commemoration of him. Um, in Siberia, uh, the little village where he was from called Pakrovskaya, um, a husband and wife have created a Rasputin museum that I visited, which is really. I, quite fascinating. You know, almost every museum in Russia, or maybe every museum in Russia is official. You know, you need the imprimatur of the state to open a museum, basically. And this is just done on the love and resources that this couple have. Uh, you know, I didn't agree with all their interpretations of him, um, but there's that. There's a fiberglass statue of Rasputin that has been put up next to the hospital where he recuperated uh, after that attack in 1914. Um, and the hospital, which is now turned into a ruin, has a new sign next to it that says, you know, here in 1914, Rasputin recovered from an assassination attempt. Um, people have tried to find the spot of his first grave uh, uh, outside Petersburg at Sarske Selo, and there's a little makeshift shrine in what I believe is an incorrect location. Um, but there's really no real sense that, you know, he's been, you know, embraced in, in you know, Putin's Russia. Other than by a group of nationalists, there is a, a small but sometimes vocal group of Russian nationalists who want to see uh, Rasputin um, beatified, canonized by the Church. Um, their belief is that he was a true martyr, that he was, uh, you know, killed as as uh, a believer in Orthodoxy, as a supporter of the throne. Uh, the Church even. Uh, put a commission together to investigate whether he was worthy of canonization but uh, they came to the conclusion that there was just too much gossip still out there and too much talk about womanizing and drunken behavior and lechery um, to have him canonized. But there are these people that do really want to see him you know, as a truly saintly figure. There are people that have uh, drawn icons, painted icons with him next to members of the holy family and that sort of thing. But those are those are fringe those are fringe views. I'd say. I'd say you know most people don't don't give him uh, much thought.
0: And, and in terms of his relationship to the the czar's
1: family, when when the the bodies were
0: discovered, stripped, what was found?
1: Well, that's one thing that was interesting is when the um, the the family was murdered in July of, of, of 1918, uh, and um, then their bodies were taken out into the woods and 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 defiled and, and stripped uh, of their clothes and their, and their jewels, um, they found that the, the daughters were all wearing around their neck amulets with uh, Rasputin's portrait on them as if up until the end, Nicholas and Alexandra continued to view him as their protector, as, as sort of the, the guiding force that would keep the family safe through their, their trials uh, in Siberian exile.
0: Thank you, Doug. Thank you.
1: Douglas Smith's book on Rasputin is coming out this fall.
0: Thanks for listening to That Stack of Books. You know you can follow us on Facebook, That Stack of Books with Nancy Pearl and Steve Scher, on Twitter, at That Stack, and at our website, thatstackofbooks.com. Check back for more information about the books we talk about and for upcoming episodes at the Bryant Corner Cafe in Northeast Seattle. You know, if you like these long-form conversations, why don't you check out another podcast I do, at length, Other conversations with visiting scholars to the University of Washington. Just search for At Length with Steve Scher. Also, I do a podcast with Robert Horton where we talk about movies. I hope you'll check that out too. Thanks for listening. Happy reading.